Good afternoon, everybody, and please may I can extend an extremely warm welcome to everybody who's come here this afternoon. We are very impressed because we know that um, we're speaking here largely about education, and many of you may be from a teaching background, and we know you should all be on holiday. So we're very impressed. I do know that people have been very, very keen to see Dr. Brian Boyd, um, the person I'm going to be chairing today, um, because when it went online back in June, it was the fastest selling out event. Went like that. <laughs> so you're all very keen. But I'm also very aware that amongst um, teachers who may be here, we'll have parents and we have other members of education um, uh, centres from around the world. As a user, you're all very welcome. Um, and anyone who also who is a parent and is just very interested in having, uh, finding out about their children. So today, I'll introduce you more formally to uh, Professor uh, Boyd, Brian Boyd. He has got a really long history in education, and I'm just going to detail it a little bit for you. He's been working for 30 years at Strathclyde University, but he's also an author of very many titles, and I understand he'll be telling you that one title is about to come out in November. November. November, and he'll tell you a little bit about that. So he's an author and an educationist, um, and he's just involved in everything really to do with education that I can see. He's been part of the Ministerial Review Group, looking at um, uh, the policy work for um, a curriculum for excellence, and he was part of the paper that was produced in 2004. So today he's going to be uh, focusing on a curriculum for excellence, and um, I'll pass you over now, and he'll talk about that. He'll be talking about it for about 40 minutes, and then a big part of the Edinburgh International Book Festival is um, that we have a discussion and so we will open that out to a discussion and we really welcome that and that will just be opening really up to the floor and um, I will just signal to somebody there'll be a roving mic and you'll just wait and then you'll be able to, to ask a question and we'll try and get a good discussion going. So can I ask everybody just to put your hands together and welcome Professor Brian Boyd. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much indeed and it is quite uh, reassuring to see there's somebody here. I was convinced that when we went onto the internet and realised it had been sold out, that probably because of the ticketing fiasco, nobody would be here. That everybody who tried to book this probably found it was sold out and I would be standing in front of nobody at all. But Brian, <laughs> so was, that was the fringe. That was the book festival. festival. <laughs> okay. So let me start then by doing what all good teachers should do and just sharing the kind of shape of a lesson with you. I'm going to try and deal with three themes in the course of the next 40 minutes. I'm going to try and say a word or two about how far I think that Scottish education has progressed over the last hundred years or so and I'm going to use some of my um, my own experience and the experience of my mother and father and and also of the next generation my son Chris and I'm going to try and talk a wee bit about what I've learned about Scottish education in the 38 years or so that I've been teaching so that's the first theme just to try and put Scottish education in some kind of context I'm then going to deal with a curriculum for excellence and I'm sure there are some people um, in the audience who are completely um, taken by the whole idea of a curriculum for excellence and some of you who may be a wee bit sceptical. Okay, so I'm going to try and address both those issues. And lastly, I'm going to try and look ahead and look at some of the challenges for the future. So that's the three main themes I'm going to deal with. So I'll try and give maybe 10 minutes to the first theme, 15 to the second, maybe 10 minutes or so to the last theme. I'm quite happy to be heckled. If you want to heckle, please ha heckle. My wife who's in the audience said to me recently, Brian, when was the last time you actually taught? She doesn't think that anything I do now counts as teaching. There's only one kind of teaching, 
and that's Wayne's. And because I don't do it, I really shouldn't be telling teachers what to do. So if you agree with her, please, just stop me. Just say, you know, when was the last time you actually taught, or way back to the West, or something along, well, this is Edinburgh, isn't it? So you may want to say something like, could you expand on that last point, or something a bit more polite, okay. But anyway, I'm quite happy to be heckled as long as it doesn't disturb the flow. So for me, education has always been a very personal issue as well as a professional one. So I will, from time to time, make references to my own experience, and I'll also be controversial, and I think you would expect me to be controversial. I might say a word or two about the dark forces which are out there, which potentially might stop a curriculum for excellence in its tracks. And I'm very sorry if any of the members of the dark forces are in the audience. <laughs> Bit tough, as they say. Okay, so let me build on my own experience and the experience of my parents. I'm going to try and take a very, very brief look at the last hundred years of education from a personal perspective. I'm going to start with my mother's education. My mother was um, educated in the 1930s mainly, 20s and 30s. She left school in 1932 from the advanced division of St. Patrick's Primary School in Anderson in Glasgow. Now I'm just going to pause there because you need to know a wee bit about what's, what was going on there to know what the significance of the advanced division is. It means, quite frankly, that she never got to secondary school. She left from the advanced division of a primary school. So that meant that somebody had taken a decision that she wasn't academic enough to benefit from a secondary education. And what that reminds us is, is that secondary education didn't become compulsory and universal until after the Second World War, which is fairly recent if you think about it in history, but she didn't benefit from that. And I came across recently her last report card from St. Patrick's Primary School, and it is in many respects a shameful document. It's a very, very brief document. It lists all of the subjects that she taught, that she was taught. It's the subjects that don't appear that give the game away. There's no maths, no modern languages, no sciences. There's housewifery, as you might expect, and that kind of thing. And across from each subject, there isn't even a word, never mind a sentence. There's only an abbreviation, either FG for fairly good, G for good, or E for excellent. And there were no E's. There were no E's for excellent. And across the page, just to bring the whole argument up to date about achievement and attainment, there were two lines. One which said, academic achievement, FG. Character and conduct, excellent. Now I'm just going to ask you in a rhetorical way, if you had a choice, which one would you like to have an excellent against? Academic achievement or character and conduct? But anyway, that's what she got. So, just fast forward till I went to school, and of course, compulsory secondary education, um, but there was selection. So when I got to go to a senior secondary school, which gave me you know, a good um, kind of basis for going on to university, what I didn't realise till later was that for every one of me that went to senior secondary, another two didn't. They went to junior secondaries. So while it was okay, in a sense, for us to benefit from that, there were lots of others who were written off at the age of 11. But it was still getting better. Fast forward again to Chris's experience in education. Chris was born in 1986. He enjoyed a fantastic primary education in Moss Nuke Primary School in East Kilbride. It's my little plug for Moss Nuke Primary School. And he emerged out of that with a hugely rounded experience and with a sense of confidence about moving on to the secondary school that I certainly didn't experience. And when he went to secondary, he again experienced not just the curricular choices that you expect, but he experienced a love of music, public speaking, he got a chance, in a sense, to exert some, of, some responsibility within the school. I can always remember when he left primary, he had been, now this will appeal to at least maybe half the audience, he was a wet interval monitor <laughs> when he left primary. Now, 
For those of you who don't know anything about primaries, you need to know that primaries have wet intervals. Secondaries don't. It doesn't rain at interval time in secondary schools, OK? So when you get a wet interval, what happens is an extra bell rings. A whole system kicks into place as if by magic. Primary seven children appear in threes outside the door of the various classrooms, and they then entertain the pupils, and they do quizzes and games. And one of them stands, whether it's a chalkboard or an electronic whiteboard, waiting to write the names of those who misbehave, don't they, on the board? So he, he left primary school with that kind of responsibility. And I remember thinking to myself, it would be cruel, wouldn't it, if I were to say to him, well, I'm glad you enjoyed that responsibility, Chris, because you might get it again, if you're lucky, if you stay till sixth year. Because by the time you arrive at primary, they've forgotten all about it, haven't they? And you suddenly have to start again winning your spurs in terms of being a responsible individual. But Chris made the transition. Duncan Rigg Secondary School was a brilliant secondary school. It wasn't brilliant in every respect, but it was brilliant overall. And Chris emerged at the end of that with a set of hires that I could only have dreamt of. I didn't even get anywhere close to what he had. So my basic thesis is I think secondary education, or sorry, education in general in Scotland has been improving over the last three generations. And I'm making that point because a curriculum for excellence didn't emerge out of a feeling that education in Scotland was broken and had to be fixed. It emerged out of a general consensus in terms of a national debate that things in general terms are working well, but they could be better. There were some things that, that we could actually address, and these were the things that were, uh, if you like, affecting education across the world. It wasn't only in our country. In terms of um, the kind of philosophical background of education at that time, I've got some books behind me that I thought I would hold up. Don't mind. It's not a plug, because they're not mine, right? But I thought I would just... That's OK. No, that's OK. So this was one which affected me. These are books that are very personal choice. This was a book called Tell Them From Me by Gowand McPherson that was published in 1980. And what it was, was an account from pupils of their experience in the later stages of secondary school at a time when there was still selection. When there were still, do you remember, certificate pupils, non-certificate pupils, academic pupils, non-academic pupils, pupils, non-pupils, whatever you want to do. And what was happening here was that what you were getting were two different narratives about the experience. Those who were in the certificate streams, generally speaking, liked school. They liked their teachers, they felt they were given a good deal, and that they felt that school would serve them well in the rest of their lives. But those who were non-certificate told a fairly shocking story from their perspective. They felt that they weren't equally valued. They felt that when the chips were down, they didn't get the best teachers. And when you were really in a shortage situation, and some of us in here can remember that when we were in shortage situations, they were the first class to be sent home early. So in some respects, this book, I think, was a wake-up call. It was simply saying that although things were improving, there was still a challenge about how you actually made sure that equity and excellence were both being accounted for in the school system. Now, I'm going to return to those right at the very end when we look towards the future. So in some respects, that's the kind of, the kind of general background. What about me as a teacher? Now, if you don't, do you mind if I'm a wee bit anecdotal? You okay with that? Okay, just in case you wanted a serious lecture. But I'm just going to be a wee bit anecdotal. I started teaching in 1970 in a junior secondary in Port Glasgow. Now, I'm not going into the detail of how I arrived at the junior secondary. It was, in a sense, by accident. I met somebody at a teacher training college, as it was then, who said to me, you must come down to Port Glasgow and do some missionary work. Because basically there was a huge shortage of teachers at that time. And seven of us 
from um, teacher training went down and started on the same day. Now, I hope you'll agree that I'm giving you the impression just now, hopefully, that I was probably quite a good teacher. Okay, you up for this? Well, I have to tell you, that was not always so. When I, when I arrived in St Stephen's High, I was really green, way behind the ears. I had no sense of myself as a person, never mind as a teacher. And when I arrived, I was given my timetable and a set of books by my principal teacher of English, and he said to me, is that okay, Brian? I'll be in the staff room if you need me. That was my induction, right? And I thought, well, I've really landed favourably. I can just go and talk to them in the staff room. So on my timetable was a class who were going to appear last period on Tuesday, and the class was called 3M Two Boys. Now, had we, if we had more time, I would do this interactively. I would get you to help me out on trying to decipher what 3M Two Boys meant. But I'm just going to let you know that I wasn't completely daft. I worked out bits of it. I reckon the three probably meant third year. Okay, you with me in this one? But remember, third year was when they left. Because 1972 was the raising of the school leaving years. This is 70. So third year is the last year. So that's the first thing you need to know. Uh, boys. 3M2 boys. All boys class. Good, yeah? But it's not an all boys school. It's a mixed school. So I'm thinking, I wonder why there's an all boys class, right? So we're now on to the difficult bit. 3M2. Any takers for M? Mechanical, close, but not quite. <laughs> no, not madmen or, or mental. None of these words will be accepted in a, an audience like this. It actually stood for modified. Okay. Now, some of you are none the wiser. Modified was a euphemism for remedial. Okay. So this is the bottom class in third year. And the two? You'll never get the two. No, 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 that's what I thought, but I was wrong. They weren't the bottom of the modifieds. The two meant they were leaving at Christmas. Because in those days, there were two intakes, if you remember. So you want to piece that... Oh, I, meant, I should have said there were 40 of them. Because there was no teacher's contract. Okay, so I've got them. They're coming in. I've never seen them before. They've never seen me. What do I do? I dust off my best lesson from Jordan Hill, which was by far a lesson on Dulquiet de Coromest <laughs> by Wilfred Owen. I ran it off in the banda. Pause for nostalgia, right? The bander gave them out. I stood at the front. I read the poem in my best Jordan Hill speech and drama voice just to make sure they were all focusing on me. And then I proceeded to try and elucidate with a judicious use of open-ended questioning any textual ambiguities there might be before we got into assonance and imagery. Well, ten minutes into the lesson, the whole thing was going pear-shaped. There were two boys up the back doing that game that they play, punching each other in the shoulder as hard as they could to see who would crack stop first. Then there was another boy over there who was punching his partner without asking him if that was okay. He was punching him. And there was a wee boy in the middle, I think he was in the middle, who was just saying the F word over and over again. I, just loud enough to hear it, but not loud enough to pin him down. And at that point I had, and it's the only time I've ever had it, an out-of-body experience. <laughs> I was floating somewhere just below the ceiling, looking down at myself, thinking, what's he doing? What is he doing? He's never going to be a teacher. What does he think he's doing? Now, at this point, something happened that was, in a sense, looking back in it, life-changing. A boy at the back put his hand up. Now, remember, we've never met. This is the first time. I should have added another bit of detail. The belt's still here. The belt's out there somewhere. You know, that's just part of the culture. Put his hand up and said, sir. Sir. He said again quiet. Sir, we don't do this kind of stuff. We're thick. 
That's what he said. That's what he said to me. Now think about it. What have you to take from that? Now what I took from it, and I'm not, I'm not really very proud of this, I took from it that that was a truce. Okay, sir, don't you bother us. We'll no bother you. Let's find an accommodation and we'll just get to Christmas and we'll leave and you don't have to do this kind of stuff. Now, to my, to my shame, I never did introduce them to Anthem for Doomed Youth. I didn't introduce them to Siegfried Sassoon, which was part of my plan. I probably did quite a lot of um, colouring in and cutting out, and I found short stories that lasted exactly a double period that I could read so they wouldn't have a chance to misbehave. I did a lot of things, looking back, that I shouldn't really have done. But the thing, I think, that stays with me is, who told him he was thick? Who told him? Well, in a sense, we did, but not you personally, or not me personally, but the system did. You don't get any thicker than being in 3M2 Boys in St. Stephen's. And yet, if you look at it from a modern perspective, what was he demonstrating, if not emotional intelligence? Somebody who took responsibility, bit of empathy, communication, took a risk, didn't know how I would respond, and offered a solution to what he saw as a problem. So in a sense, what that did, I think, was to make me committed to the principle of egalitarianism, of lack of selection, of a, 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 maybe a kind of pathological fear of the effects of setting by attainment that doesn't take into account wider issues. So there's a sense in which that was quite key for me. So anyway, that's, that's the anecdotal bit. Let's get more serious again. You're here to listen to me talking about a curriculum for excellence as, as a main issue. Now, I need to put my, put my cards on the table on this one. I think a curriculum for excellence is brilliant, potentially. I think it's got the possibility of being a new paradigm in Scottish education. I think it could take us to a place where we haven't been at least for 25 years. Now, I'm not going to name names, but I think Mrs Thatcher has got something to do with this. I think when you look back on what happened in education round about 1979, what I think was launched at that point was a kind of culture where teachers really weren't trusted. Not trusted to be professional, not trusted to make judgments, not trusted to do anything other than to be told what to teach, when to teach it, how to teach it, and what order to teach it, for how many minutes a week to teach it. And in the back of that was an accountability agenda, which I think was punitive. So that, if you like, is a kind of scenario which precedes a curriculum for excellence. And what I think a curriculum for excellence tried to do was to say, well, um, what exactly is it that we want education to provide for young people in the 21st century? Now, I think for some people, a curriculum for excellence still seems a bit vague. It's a bit lacking in detail. There's a sense in which some people, I think, are, are waiting for somebody to tell us what to do. And what I hope is that, well, we don't wait for somebody to tell us what to do, that we go ahead and we do it. And we actually take what's available at the present time and we exercise our professional judgment so that we create a curriculum that's somehow suited to our youngsters where we don't rely on other people to tell us what to do. Now, let me try and put a wee bit of flesh on that if I can. I'm just going to count to three and I'm going to ask you to chant the four purposes of the curriculum. Okay, you ready? One. No, I'm only kidding. I'm not really going to do that. I'm not really, but I've, we could do it, couldn't we? We could, because they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They're on the walls in the staff room. <laughs> you may even have them up in your classroom. In a sense, you know, those four kind of main headline aims have become a shorthand for what we want education to be. And I think it's legitimate for people in education, parents, um, 
end users of education, business, industry, universities, colleges, and so on, to ask, well, where did these four aims come from? So you've got successful learners, confident individuals, effective contributors, responsible citizens. Did we just dream these up? Did they just get pulled out of a hat? I would imagine if we spent a bit of time here, we could come up with another four, couldn't we? We could come up with another We could even just simply mix and match the adjectives and the nouns, and no doubt it would still make some sense. So where did they come from? Well, they came from a broad set of aims that UNESCO had drawn together in 1998. UNESCO had looked at education worldwide and had said, what would be a kind of set of aims that would encompass any country? wherever it was in its journey along education, and it would be a kind of aspirational set of aims. So what they came up with was very simple and easy to remember, even easier than the four purposes of the curriculum from the Curriculum for Excellence. And it was this. Four aims were learning to know, learning to do, learning to live together, and learning to be. Now, it seems to me that what they have positively is that they're brief. They've got the word learning right at the heart of the matter, which I think many of us would welcome. But they also suffer from the possible criticism that maybe they're too vague and too general. For me, the biggest problem with them is I think the order is wrong. Learning to know, learning to do, learning to live together, learning to be, I think is an or the order that you would expect most countries that are advanced industrial countries to have. So learning to know is the most important because that's the bit you can test. That's the bit you can have an exam on. That's the bit you can have a league table on. That's the bit you can judge local authority against local authority, school against school, department against department. And learning to do, which is a practical application of learning, has never been given equal status with academic learning. Now, I don't know what, what you do for a living, but I would imagine there are some people in here who teach so-called minority subjects, like art, drama, music, RE. And you know in your heart of hearts, don't you, that they're not really as important as <laughs> physics and maths. <laughs> in fact, I've often thought one of these days before I retire, I'll go to a secondary school and secondary schools are good for this, put the teachers into mixed groups and give them a task. I'd list all the subjects in the curriculum and say that I want you to come up with an order of importance and I want you all to agree. <laughs> there would be blood in the carpets, wouldn't there? There would be blood. There would be blood in the carpets even within single departments. Like, can you imagine a science department? Science department is trying to agree what are the, what's the order of importance, but it's it's as plain as a nose in your face, isn't it? Physics is the most important. <laughs> well, it must be, because it's the hardest. Chemistry's second, because second hardest. And biology's third, because it's for girls, basically, <laughs> isn't it? Well, anyway, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm only kidding. I'm, I'm pleased before anybody lynches me, I'm only kidding. But my point, in a sense, is that there's always been this issue of parity of esteem within the curriculum for subjects that are not seen to be at the heart of the matter. I've often wondered what we would have done if Chris had come back from his meeting with the deputy head on the day before he started fifth year to sort out his option choice, if he'd said, right, mum and dad, I've picked my five hires. I'm doing music, art, um, technical, home economics, and PE. What would we have said? Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, I can get out of that one because he'd never have got out of the deputy's room. <laughs> They'd have said, that'll be right, son, you're doing English, maths, physics, chemistry, and one other, basically, which is the way it went. And even the one other was problematic. We wanted it to be music. They wanted it to be a modern language. So my point, in a sense, is there's always been this concern about parity of esteem within the secondary curriculum. So what, in a sense, I think a curriculum for excellence is doing is building on the UNESCO aims of saying, well, why should there be an order of importance? Why should learning to know be more important than learning to do? 
I work in a university which has a motto which says that we're a place of useful learning. So useful learning is about learning that's applied, about taking what you know and applying it in new and unpredictable situations. And in fact, you could argue that's the only way if you can, under, you can tell if somebody's understood something, if they can take what you hope they've learned and apply it in a new situation rather than the one in which they learned it. So when you look through that list of to know, to do, to live together, well, you only have to look around the world, don't you? If we don't get learning to live together right quite soon, there's not a lot of future for the species. It seems to me that that's absolutely crucial. And the last one, which is learning to be, I think, in a sense, is the most challenging of all. I would tip the aims in their head. I would start the other way around. I would say that the purpose of education is about helping people to learn who they are. What's it like to be a human being? What is it to be a human being in the 21st century? What are, what are the kind of big questions that we have to ask? Why are we here? What are the kind of big issues that seem to have to be addressed across the entire planet? And it seems to me that in a learning situation, the next most important question is what kind of learner am I? What kind of things do I need to do to become a better learner? For too, for too long it's been assumed that we were born with a certain amount of intelligence and that was it. You know, you've got some, I've got some, you might have more than me, I might have more than you, but it's fixed and you can't influence it. Now there's a lot of evidence to suggest, well, actually, you can influence it. You can grow your intelligence. You can develop new skills. You become better at things that you're not naturally gifted in. So if you take that as your starting point, learning to live together simply comes naturally. Because it seems to me the one person who's re-emerged as a key feature in Scottish education in the 21st century is Vygotsky. Now, I know you know, don't you? Vygotsky is not Hart's new left-sided midfield player. You know that, don't you? You know that Vygotsky is someone who argues that learning is about social interaction, that learning is very much a social process, and that it's about learning with other people and not simply learning silently and quietly and individually. And then if you take that upwards, then learning, learning to do becomes more important than learning to know, and learning to know is something that you can do in lots of ways, through the internet and elsewhere. So a curriculum for excellence has that basis. But what does it do? Well, I think a curriculum for excellence offers you a possibility. Do you remember Annika Rice? Yeah. Okay, you do. Remember the programme. This is your challenge. Should you wish to accept it? Do you remember? Well, curriculum for excellence is your challenge. Should you wish to accept it? Are you comfortable in what we've grown up with around 5 to 14 in standard grade with somebody from the centre giving us the syllabus, telling us what to teach? Are we comfortable? There's a whole generation of teachers who are because they don't know anything else. That's what they've been trained in, and that's what they've grown up with. So here's a curriculum for excellence saying, well, actually, you don't need that amount of direction. If we give you the purposes and some principles, if we then work out some learning outcomes, and I'm not saying the learning outcomes are brilliant, but at least they're out for public consultation, we believe that teachers can take those, can exercise professional judgments, can work with their local communities, and their parents and young people, and come up with a curriculum that isn't the same in every school up and down the country. So in a mature democracy, do we need uniformity dictated from the centre, or can we live with a wee bit of diversity? Or as was put to me recently by a director of education, do we want to be curriculum victims, or do we want, do we want to be curriculum leaders? Do we want to take a bit of responsibility for that? So in a sense, I think that's the challenge. Now, let me just nail my colours to the mast in this. I don't think everything about a curriculum for excellence is good. Some of the things that happened after the report was written, I think are highly dubious. I don't know where the levels came from. 
Is there anybody in the room who knows where the levels came from? Nobody. I don't know. I don't know anybody who does. We've now got a set of levels which are different from the 5 to 14 levels that preceded them. They're different from standard grade. They're just arbitrary. They are levels that seem to suggest that you can pinpoint when every, every seven-year-old, say, for example, a 10-year-old, should be able to do something. Do you believe that there's anything that every seven-year-old in Scotland should be able to do at the same time, on the same day? So it seems to me we've got to shrug off that kind of notion that you can set predetermined levels for every stage for every youngster across the country. The eight new subject areas seem to me to have come from nowhere. They're not 5 to 14 subject areas, they're not standard grade modes, they're not subjects as we've known them. They seem to me to be a quite arbitrary um, combination of other subjects and again with no kind of rationale. So I'm not suggesting to you that everything in a curriculum for excellence garden is rosy. I'm simply saying I think the underlying message is one of trust. That teachers can be trusted, can be trusted to work together in their clusters with their parents and can arrive at a curriculum that meets the needs of their young people. That seems to me to, the basic, to be the basic message of a curriculum for excellence. Right, coming to the very last section of this, and that's some challenges for the future. What is it that Scottish education doesn't do well? I'm not trying to, in a sense, give you a very rosy picture, but I think our biggest challenge by far is closing the gap. How do we close the gap in achievement between those young people who are advantaged and those who are not? Um, those who are living in what you might call poverty, albeit relative poverty, and all that that entails, who still continue to underachieve. And if you believe, as I believe, that you're not less intelligent just because you're poor, then how does the system accommodate that? Well, it seems to me that the system accommodates that only by looking at a whole range of interventions. There's no single answer. There's no magic bullet. There's not something you can simply institute and it will solve all problems. There's no literacy or numeracy test at the end of school that's necessarily going to guarantee that everybody is literate and numerate. But you've got a series of interventions that we can see across different local authorities. Western Bartonshire, Glasgow, you probably saw last week, got a lot of interesting um, publicity. It's something about working hard to make sure that no young child, to use an American phrase, is left behind. And that youngsters who have difficulty with basic skills at the very earliest age get the most input. And maybe it's about refocusing resources away from possibly higher education into preschool. And making sure that you support the gains that are made in preschool all the way through primary and all the way through secondary. It might take a generation, but the problem's been there for at least three generations. So let's make sure we commit to something that's going to work over a period of time and not look for simple solutions. I think there's also an issue about intelligent accountability. It seems to me that at the present time we have a regime of accountability that's punitive. And this is where I'm going to have a go at some of the dark forces, is that okay, just to alert you. It seems to me that there are a number of them. I think Her Majesty's Inspectorate obviously would come high up that list. But to be fair, I think they know they have to change. They're beginning to change their inspection regime. I think they realise that coming into schools with a blueprint and it is actually blue if you look at the cover, and suggesting that they can somehow apply it to every single school in Scotland in the same way doesn't make any sense. And what they need to be doing is coming into school and say, well, tell us what you're doing. Tell us what you think you're good at. Tell us some of the successes you think you have, and we'll go and have a look, and we'll see if we think you're right. 
And if we see something along the way that we don't think is right, we'll come back and discuss it with you. So it seems to me there's an issue there about the ownership of the improvement process. Self-evaluation must be at the heart of it. The exam board. Well, I don't know about you, but all the fuss last week, did you hear it, about the exams have gone up by 1.4%. Therefore, the exams must be dumbing down. If they'd gone down by 1.4%, schools would be less effective. You really can't win in that one. But it seems to me that that's a smokescreen. The problem, I think, is that our current set of exams are not fit for purpose. Trooping youngsters 200 at a time into halls in silence and asking them to write as fast as they can for two and a half hours on just about anything is not really going to do it for the 21st century. If what you want are young people who've got skills, who can work together in teams, who are creative thinkers, who are problem solvers, who are empathetic, then that kind of examination system doesn't allow you to assess that range of talents and attributes. And I think that's, for me, the biggest challenge. Can we look at our examination system and recalibrate it for the 21st century? Can we pinpoint the four purposes and ask, how does our exam system reflect that? I think I'm going to leave, in a sense, the biggest dark force to the end and talk a wee bit about business and industry. I've had a lot of senior business people recently talking about the skills they want young people to have when they leave school. And it's about the things I mentioned, problem solving, teamwork, and um, creative thinking. But have you ever noticed what they do when they advertise for positions in their firms? They usually say, we'd like five hires, one of them maths and one of them physics, please. So in other words, they speak with forked tongue. And what they have to do is to come to the table and discuss what the kind of curriculum in schools ought to be that will provide for them the young people who can take their place in a highly technological world and help the economy to continue to grow. But the last one I'm going to leave till the end because it's the most controversial, and that's the universities. The universities, I think, are the tail that wags the dog. And if all they're going to continue to do is up the ante every year and demand higher and higher um, entrance qualifications for every course, that doesn't help. And they need to actually ask themselves, what is it they want to know about young people when they come into university that might help them make judgments about whether or not they're entering the right kind of courses? I was involved in a piece of research about a year or so ago looking at recognising wider achievement. And we had a day in Jordan Hill where we invited all the admissions officers from every Scottish university and some people from industry, and only three people turned up because they weren't interested, basically. They didn't really want to know. They didn't see it as being part of their agenda. So it seems to me that we need a far better means of communication between higher education and, if you like, um, state education, or the education that's compulsory. And I don't think we have it at the present time. So I'm going to finish just by making one or two um, kind of suggestions for how we might move forward. I think for a small country, we're not very good at joining up our thinking. Now, I'm going to be very careful here because I would imagine some of you here who are teachers probably work in PFI schools or PPP schools, as they're sometimes called, so I don't really want to offend anybody. But I'm simply going to suggest to you that as a curriculum for excellence was progressing as a policy initiative, at the same time we were building schools that took no account of a curriculum for excellence. And a lot of the schools that have been built, in my view, are not schools for the 21st century. They're just modern ver versions of 20th century schools, and they just look better, at least at the moment. They won't look better forever. And what you have is a missed opportunity. We had an opportunity to, if you like, look beyond the present and ask ourselves, what kind of 
environments would we want young people to learn in for the 21st century and somehow make the link between the importance of learning and the importance of the context within which learning takes place. So I, I think in a sense we've got a problem. We don't talk to each other enough. And if you're looking for evidence of that, I think you'd have to say that even across the sectors in Scottish education, we're still not talking to each other enough. Primary, secondaries, early years and primary. So, if you like, joining up policy would seem to me to be an obvious place to go. Finally, I think there's maybe a challenge within this for all of us, and that's about can we actually put pedagogy at the heart of the matter. Now, I'm I put the word pedagogy in because I'm going to start a wee campaign soon to reintroduce pedagogy into Scottish education because it's a word we don't use much. If you go across to the mainland of Europe, the place that I work in, which is a former Jordan Hill College, would be a pedagogical institute because pedagogy gives a distinct impression that the way we teach isn't just a matter of accident. That pedagogy is about a combination of theory and research and experience and practice. And I'm a, a, a member of an organisation, as some of you know, called Tapestry. And what we try and do is we try and bring to this country as many important people from across the world who've got something to say about pedagogy. People who've got ideas that are worth listening to. And of course, when they come to Scotland, they don't expect an easy ride. We ask them hard questions. That's what Scottish teachers do. But it's about, isn't it, trying to take the best ideas from around the world and ask ourselves, how can we as teachers become better at we do that, uh, what we do by working with ideas and working in a more collaborative manner. Now, I'm getting signs, I think, am I? Because I'm on a roll here, so it's nine o'clock, we finish. No, no, okay, sorry, okay. Sorry. So in a sense, I suppose that's the challenge, isn't it? Can we take a curriculum for excellence as a springboard and allow us, those of you who are teachers and those of you who have got an interest in it, to engage in a dialogue, in a debate, about where we'd like to see the system go in the future? Because in the past, since at least the Second World War, the curriculum has only ever been reviewed in little chunks. So you review primary, you review the middle stages of secondary, then you look at 10 to 14, then you look at 5 to 14, then you look at 16 plus. So you can't be surprised if the system doesn't cohere and doesn't work together. Now a curriculum for excellence is a curriculum 3 to 18. It's an opportunity for everybody who wants to improve Scottish education to get together and to start talking about it around that kind of agenda. Right, I'm going to stop because I'm, I've got a sense in which I'm going to perspire, <laughs> expire or perspire drink, up here drink, drink, and take some drink. questions, okay? We've got some water. Okay, um, I'll maybe just um, yeah. mention one thing. That is, um, which you may not know about, is that um, Brian will be um, signing books um, at the end of the session in the adult tent if you, if okay. you, want, to go, if you want to go there because you may not have known about that. Brian, I may kick off... I think right. that's called feedback, isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to kick up with, with just one question to right. you, and then we'll just open it up to the floor, and you'll just raise your hands. I've just been reflecting. Um, on Saturday was, was the first day of the, the um, Edinburgh International Book Festival, and it was fabulous. We had um, Gordon Brown here um, uh, um, kicking it all off, and he mentioned something about courage. He said that he's focusing a lot on, the, on what he regards to be the most important quality of mankind is courage. And I've been thinking quite a lot about um, a curriculum for excellence. And I'm wondering if, do you think as teachers, you know, we can see the marvellous opportunity that's there for creativity um, and everything and designing our curriculum. Do you think there's perhaps the case that we may need courage for curriculum for excellence? 
I mean, in a sense, I, mean, I, I don't have any objection to courage being highlighted, but I think for teachers, one of the biggest challenges is, can we be risk takers? Now, I don't know about you, but when I came into teaching in 1970, I thought that was my job, actually. I thought it was my job to be creative and to try new things. In fact, I don't know if many people know this, but I invented group work. <laughs> personally. No, I did. I mean, just personally, in fact. I mean, <laughs> I've got the evidence to prove it. And I, I wrote this, <laughs> this booklet in the late 1980s, and I mean, it's, it's really deeply embarrassing now. That's the title, Beginning Group Work in Secondary One. Then I discovered a wee bit later on that primaries had beaten me to it by about 20 years. <laughs> but, but you see, in those days, it was possible. Because when I arrived in a secondary school to be an English teacher, there was no group work. Because it was just a very traditional diet. The kind of thing that I'd experienced with Shakespeare on a Monday, a novel on a Tuesday, grammar on a Wednesday, and so on. And here, here were we trying to create a new pedagogy with an English, and it looked as though the world was our oyster. We could try these things. Now, we could take risks. But we weren't being reckless. We weren't going to harm anybody. We weren't going to do anything that was bad for young people. We were going to try and make the subject as interesting and as effective as possible. So I would like to see that being the case. I'd also like young people to begin to realise that failure isn't something to be avoided. Failure is good. Failure is something you need to be prepared to meet if you're going to be an effective learner. There's nothing worthwhile learning that I can think of that you could learn effectively without being prepared to make a mistake. And yet for many young people in schools, they learn early on, don't they? Don't, whatever you do, make a mistake. And don't do it publicly. Because they've, they've learned that maybe the consequences of that might be negative. I mean, the, the days are long gone, I think, when teachers in training had a class on ritual humiliation. The teachers who taught me did. They did. The ritual humiliation was on the agenda, I'm sure it was. And they could do it through sarcasm, they could do it by singling you out. Teachers don't do that in the main any longer. So what we need to try and do is to help young people to be prepared to make mistakes. So for me, it's not courage particularly, it's resilience, stickability, being able to try something and learn from failure and to go on to try it again. I think that for me would be the big challenge in education. Thank you. Yeah. Well, let's open this out to um, the floor. If you just want to, um, I'm not going to believe I'm going to say this, raise your hand. <laughs> Um, but just for the, for the you roving mic. You can put thumbs up if you prefer. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, this lady here, and then and then down at the front, the back here. Just want to introduce yourself first, and then your question. Hello, my name is Camille, and I'm a parent. Uh, my children, six and eight, have so many goals and personal learning plans, and weekly targets, quarterly targets. I want to know who's thought about my children because when they leave before eight in the morning and get home after three. I barely have time to cook a meal with them and maybe chat. So who's thought of the young ones? And can I have my children back? <laughs> Listen, the only thing I can say before I answer your question directly is that all the primary teachers in the audience are saying, yeah, we've got all these targets too. I mean, primary teachers, I think, are the most targeted people. They've got, you know, they've got um, termly plans, they've got monthly forecasts, they've got daily diaries, all sorts of things. Yeah, I think what you're pointing at is that there's been a bureaucratic nightmare over the last 25 years around education. And what I think a curriculum for excellence is trying to do is to take us back from that and to say, you know, that we need to say to teachers, okay, record keeping is important. You need to try and record what young people have achieved and so on because others like yourself might need to know at some point, but don't let that be the driving force. And there are lots of people I think who initially saw a curriculum for excellence and thought, yeah, this is good. This is good. This could give me a bit more responsibility and a bit more freedom
to decide what it is that we can do to help your young person achieve and also to enjoy learning. So, I mean, in a sense, I suppose, well, if, if I can take a simple example, I don't really want you to feel depressed about this. We've just finished a piece of research in Highland Council, and we've been looking at teachers teaching in fifth year, uh, so pupils who are going for hire, and we've been asking the question, is it possible to use assessment at that stage, which is forward-looking and formative, rather than simply about testing and examination focused? Now, what we're discovering is that the average secondary school in Highland Council um, has two prelims in fifth year. That's two sets of preparatory examinations for the hires. They have three NABs, that's National Assessment Bank items, for the rest of you who don't know that. They have dry runs of NABs. They have weekly timepieces. They have a whole panoply of summative assessment demands on them. Um, and within that, they're also trying to enthuse young people about learning. Now, sooner or later, um, I think something is going to give. And I think what we'll give will be the teacher's enthusiasm to continue with their job. So I don't think your youngsters should be hidebound by that kind of uh, bureaucracy. I think we somehow need to loosen up. In some respects, I think we're looking at an axis about tight loose. Can we actually, in the past, we thought we could improve education by tightening the curriculum, tighten it from the centre, make everybody do the same thing, make them record it. And then you could loosen up, if you like, what teachers did, so in terms of CPD and so on. I think we need to do it the opposite way. Loosen up the curriculum a bit, but make sure that CPD is central. Every teacher have, has an entitlement to high-quality CPD when they require it. And maybe we won't get into that kind of bureaucratic nightmare in the future. I think it's going to take this one and then we'll come down to the front. So just here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Sean Delaney is my name and I work as a teacher and a teacher educator. And um, I found your presentation very interesting. Um, you you started to address um, the, the, the question I'm going to ask in your previous response. But the question is, you talked about teachers being curriculum leaders. And you also talked about universities as being one of the dark forces. And I wonder, could you say a little bit about how, what you would envisage to be a curriculum for excellence for preparing teachers, both at pre-service and in-service level? Well, it's interesting because that's my job, in a sense. That's my daily job, um, initial teacher education. I don't know how much people are aware of what's been going on over the last 10 years or so within universities and in particular within faculties of education. But the balance has tipped quite dramatically away from learning and teaching being the core business to research output being the core business. So basically, how universities are judged is in terms of their published research output. It's the RAE exercises, it's called, and it's the equivalent of exam league tables for, for schools. So in a sense, when it comes down to it now, within initial teacher education, if there's a choice to be made between doing in-service training with teachers, between writing uh, curriculum materials for teachers, or writing an article for a refereed journal that might be read by half a dozen people on a good day, then it's a no-brainer. You have to write the article for the journal. Now, I think that's simply the wrong balance. And what I would like to see happening would be um, something which said, well, research output is important. It's important to share insights, particularly across the world now with the internet, but it shouldn't be at the expense of learning and teaching. When young people go to university, they expect that the people standing in front of them are committed to excellence in learning and teaching. And I'd have to say, they may not be. 
because their attention may be on research output as opposed to what they're doing with young people. So in a sense, that's my concern. My concern is that teacher education at the moment has been taken down a cul-de-sac. And we need to be very, very careful that we don't lose sight of what's really important here. Okay, thank you. And it was this down here. The mic would just come around. <laughs> very cutting. My name is Jules. I'm a school principal from New Zealand. Okay. I'm interested curriculum for excellence. How have you defined excellence? And forgive me if everybody else in this audience knows. I'm also wondering to what extent do you see this curriculum um, allowing for learners to participate in designing the curriculum? Also, to what extent do you see opportunities for learners of different ages to work together for at least part of their day or week or whatever. We've tried it mm -hmm. um, and I would really like to okay. know. Yeah, I do like the sound of that question. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to okay. be the one because I've spoken to you in the past right. about excellence okay. Okay. and it's a quote from Brian from the past It says, excellence. It's a great word that keeps the worst company. <laughs> well, well, in a sense, you see, what's really important to know is that the title of the document, A Curriculum for Excellence, was not the decision of the group that produced the document. It was a political decision. And the word excellence, I think, is a word that has, um, has to be treated with some caution. And I think, I think um, that's right. I mean, it does, it's a good word that keeps bad company because it seems to be used by politicians for their own ends. And I'm worried about it because I think... It's, there's an elitist undertone to it. I would have preferred a curriculum for learning or a curriculum for life. That seem, would seem to me to have sent a better circle signal, but we had no, we had no uh, choice in the matter. Now, just to, to answer your question about definition, um, about two years ago, Her Majesty's Inspector had moved from a four-point scale to a six-point scale for their inspections. And the top of that scale, as you might expect, was excellent so that if you got the top grade, you would be excellent. Now, I remember being involved in a small discussion group with a group of Majesty's inspectors, and it was clear to me that they had no common knowledge of what the term excellent meant. And in fact, in the definition which they gave it, eventually, excellent meant excellent. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to tell you, I'm an English teacher. I used to give interpretations, and there were always meanings of words questions. And if a youngster had put down as a meaning of excellent, excellent, I'd have said, good, no marks. <laughs> Nothing out of two. <laughs> so you're quite right. The word excellence is, I think, a smokescreen. And I think we need to be very, very wary of it. The point about empowering youngsters is really important. And the answer to the lady's question at the back, who was worried about our, our children, you know, constantly having targets, it should be about empowering young people. That's what education ought to be about. It's about young people becoming much more engaged giving them more responsibility for their learning, using peer and self-assessment, doing all of those kinds of things so it's no longer a passive recipient kind of experience. And I think a curriculum for excellence is certainly edging its way in that direction, but we've probably got quite a bit to go, particularly in the secondary sector. As far as mixed stage learning is concerned, I think that is just a great idea. It happens, of course, naturally. Half of the primary schools in Scotland have fewer than 100 pupils. They do it every day. Because they have mixed age classes, it's just the way they work. I was in a couple of primary schools in Stirling Council recently, the, the, biggest, the bigger of the two had 46 pupils. So, I mean, there only were two classes and it was mixed age. And I think in the secondary, that's a huge challenge. Secondary schools are very rigid 
um, very um, thorough to, to, to structures and to systems. And I mean, not only do youngsters not work across ages, they very rarely work across attainment levels because decisions are made about them very early on. So I think that's a big one. The only thing we've done in Scotland, I think, has been, in my view, negative. And we've relaxed the age and stage restrictions on examination presentations. And all that's happened is we put kids in for exams earlier. And I just wonder what the value of that is, to be honest. So it's a good question. Uh, I don't know how far we'll go in that one, to be honest with you. Can we, can we come around? Yes. Uh, I, I taught a minority subject, the, the, <laughs> the minorities of minorities, RE, Ooh. just up the road Ooh. in Port Glasgow High, <laughs> I may tell you, so there you go. Okay. Um, and, and since I've left, uh, we've been inundated with the targets syndrome. Now, uh, I simply want to say that one of the difficulties is that people find it uh, a little difficult to, to know why targets are so divisive. Mm -hmm. Now, th there is quite a history, and if you would have to, uh, to do a bit of work on it. Um, but to my mind, uh, the best uh, advice would be to go to Google and try <laughs> Mr. John Seddon, S-E-D-D-O-N, John Seddon, or his organization called Vanguard. Uh, now, you would have to go behind that again and read, but we really have to know why. Why are targets so divisive? And the answer is because... It strikes at the very heart of any kind of reasonable, sensible review and progress of what we're doing. Thank you. Well, I think, I mean, just to kind of broaden that out a bit, I mean, I think for me, one of the biggest, maybe the final frontier, really, in education is the concept of intelligence and the impact that it has in the way schools are organised. Because it seems to me that, I mean, over the years, we've looked at some of the big issues. We've looked at race and gender and disability. We've tried to rid ourselves of all of the kind of prejudices around that, but we've never addressed intelligence. And there's still a kind of common sense, a theoretical view that persists among educators that intelligence is somehow fixed and you can measure it and you can predict on the basis of it and you can sort people out. And even if you don't use IQs, you use a proxy measure, something that simply sorts people out. And unfortunately, of course, the, the label often gets attached to the person. So you might hear somebody talk about, I've got my foundies next period. Well, that's a level A pupil. What's a level A pupil? A level A is a, a, a level that's been made up somewhat arbitrarily by curriculum thinkers. It's not a definition of a person. So I would agree with you. I think the issue of targets and labels is probably the next big battle to be waged within the system. And I think we need to ask ourselves just why do we find it so comforting? If you look at the research evidence on setting by prior attainment, there's virtually no evidence to support it around and yet it's still the default position in most secondary schools in particular. So it's a challenge, certainly. Great, thank you. I think we've got time for one last question. <laughs> At the very back there. One, <laughs> I'm happy to stay as long as you like. <laughs> you may have somewhere else to go, yeah? You'll be in the adult's <laughs> tent. The adult's tent. This is the child, children's tent. <laughs> Hello, I'm John Wilson. Uh, I teach at New Battle Community High School in Midlothian. Uh, Brian, I'd like to ask you uh, about your views which relate to the, difference, uh, the different um, challenges and opportunities for the different sectors in education in yeah. Scotland. Um, working in a secondary school, I'm particularly concerned about the rigid systems and the structures that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'd like to hear your views on uh, you know, any kind of practical measures that can be taken to break down 
some of the uh, constraints sure. so that we can work in a more collaborative and, and cross-curricular way. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that last phrase you've just used maybe gets to the heart of the matter. One of the kind of sub-themes, I think, of a curriculum for excellence is a challenge to the domination of subjects. And it's not saying that subjects should disappear. It's simply saying that they should, shouldn't dominate in the way they do. And that interdisciplinary learning ought to at least have equal status to subject-based learning. Now, I mean, there's some, there's some research on that from across the world. The most uh, recent material that's come out of it is from Queensland, where they've introduced a new curriculum approach called New Basics. And as part of that, their assessment regime, which they call rich tasks, is interdisciplinary. And what has emerged out of that research is that if you do approach certain topics in an interdisciplinary way, paradoxically, what they do is they actually strengthen the discipline. Because what you have to do is that you have to make explicit the contribution of each subject to the interdisciplinary topic. And I think one of the interesting facts is that young people can go through our system, even the most successful young people who leave with five hires can come out of that experience without much knowledge really of the disciplines that they've studied. They've just learned the syllabus and they've learned it really well because the teachers are really good at teaching them. So in, in my view, I think interdisciplinary learning is going to be a big challenge in the secondary. And I already know, you know, just from speaking to people, you'll know as well, there's a kind of head of steam developing against it. People are already saying, well, it's, it's a good idea, but not for me. I don't want to be involved in that. So I think that's certainly a challenge. I think there's also a challenge in terms of the tyranny of the timetable in the secondary. The timetable ought to be an enabling device, and it's not. I mean, there are some people here who no doubt work in secondary schools that have now got 33 period weeks. Now, the only reason for having a 33-period week is it because it delivers the Macron agreement. Now, I'm getting technical here, but all it does is it makes sure that no teacher gets one minute more than their basic minimum non-teaching time because you're dividing the periods up into multiples of 50 minutes. That's no reason for having a timetable structure. You have to ask a question, what's the best timetabling structure to facilitate effective learning? And there's a lot of evidence to suggest if you want deep learning, if you want meaningful learning, if you want metacognition, you know, all of that kind of stuff, then you need to lengthen the period of the learning, not shorten it. So I think I would agree with you. There are one or two big systemic challenges around within the secondary sector. Yeah. Okay, thank you. I think that's the end of um, questions. But uh, Brian will be over in the adults' tent. And I'm sure you can catch him and, and chat to him because it is, you, you provoke discussion really well. <laughs> Uh, Brian today and I can see everyone's ra rather engaged in, in what you're saying and there's a lot to say about this matter but however time um, talking about timetabling was another event scheduled so we have to pull this to a close um, this evening but Brian's at um, Strathclyde University as well and um, and you can see um, um, the website there you can see um, other links and other things that would be appearing and of course tapestry which Brian also um, uh, heads up also has a variety of teachers events um, um, uh, throughout, throughout the year. However, I'd like, like to ask everyone to put your hands together and thank Brian very much for his engaging talk. Thank you.